It's 2 a.m. on July 14, 1958. Richard Loving, 25, and Mildred Loving, 19, are sound asleep inside their Central Point, Virginia home. Suddenly, there's a crash sound coming from the front door. But before Richard and Mildred can even get out of bed to find out what's happening, multiple flashlights are shining in their eyes. Standing in front of them, the county sheriff and two of his deputies. What amounts to the entire law enforcement team in the county. One of the deputies asks Richard, Who is that woman you are sleeping with? Mildred responds for him, I'm his wife. When Richard gestures to the couple's marriage certificate hanging on the wall, the sheriff coldly says the document has no power in his county. According to him, the crime is pretty simple. Richard is white, and Mildred is not. The official charge is violating Virginia's 1924 Racial Integrity Act, known as a miscegenation law. This criminalizes marriages between people classified as white and people classified as colored. In part, the law states, it shall hereafter be unlawful for any white person in the state to marry any save a white person. So Richard and Mildred Loving are handcuffed and taken to jail. If convicted, they are facing up to five years in prison. They don't know it yet, but the Loving's arrest will soon change their lives and eventually the lives of millions of others for generations to come. Along the way, there will be financial hardships, long stretches apart from each other and friends and family as well as living in a constant fear of being harassed or arrested by law enforcement. But eventually, as they say, love will conquer all. That's because this unassuming, small-town couple will take on the laws prohibiting interracial marriage so they can live a happy and quiet life in the only hometown they've ever known. To do this, they will be sent on a wild ride that starts in a back bedroom of a farmhouse in eastern Virginia and makes its way all the way to the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., and into the courtroom of the Supreme Court of the United States. We could ride the light waves Together ignore all the sound waves How do we get, how do we get so brave? How do we get, how do we get so brave? I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. In our very first episode, we're going to document the touching and groundbreaking love story surrounding husband and wife turned civil rights freedom fighters, Richard and Mildred Loving. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. 
Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories. Loving versus the Commonwealth of Virginia is a landmark case, both in the history of race relations in the United States and in the ongoing political and cultural dispute over the true definition of marriage. It not only paved the way for interracial marriage, it also serves as a cited precedent for the fight for the legalization of same-sex marriage. But the people at the heart of this story, Richard and Mildred Loving, a couple with a last name seemingly written by some Hollywood screenwriter, never planned on changing laws or becoming heroes of the civil rights movement. They are just a simple couple with simple dreams that included starting a family, living in the town they loved, and spending the rest of their lives together. But then life and the laws of Virginia get in the way of all that, sending them on an unexpected journey that becomes one of the greatest and most important love stories of our time. I feel this not only because I myself am in an interracial marriage, but because I believe that when it comes to falling in love with someone's soul, skin color just isn't part of the equation. The first of our heroes in this story, and I have no trepidation using the term hero, is Mr. Richard Perry Loving. Richard is born on October 29, 1933 in Central Point, Virginia, a small farming community inside Caroline County, the very place he lives when all the hoopla occurs around his marriage. And although he carries the last name Loving, the history of his family name has not always been so, well, loving. According to a census in 1830, his paternal ancestor, Louis Loving, owned seven slaves. Also, Richard's paternal grandfather served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. But when Richard is growing up, he and most of the white people in Caroline County are known for socializing with the non-white members of the community, a fact that's in stark contrast to the segregation found in most southern cities and towns, especially in rural Virginia. And although Richard is one of our heroes in this story, at first glance, you really wouldn't peg him as one. He's tall with a blonde crew cut, a measured southern drawl, and has the look that, well, if you were to cast him in a movie, you'd probably cast him as the southern white supremacist, not the interracial freedom fighter. He just has that kind of look. But looks are not always what they seem. So despite growing up in a time and place where Jim Crow laws continue to propagate an undercurrent of unbridled racism, Richard Loving and the people in his life were anything but racist. In fact, his world is so progressive that his mother, who's a midwife, delivers babies for mothers of all races. And his father was an employee of one of the wealthiest black people in the county for nearly 25 years. Richard would describe growing up this way. There's just a few people that live in this community. There's a few white and a few colored. And as I grew up and as they grew up, we all helped one another, you know? It was all, as I say, mixed together to start with. And it just kept going that way. It's been that way for years down here. 
As a young man, Richard begins a career as a bricklayer and a mason. But his real passion lies in revved up engines and drag car racing. He does this every chance he can get. His partners in these races and his closest companions in general are black, including the older brothers of one Mildred Dolores Jeter. Mildred, our story's heroine, is born on July 22, 1939, also in Central Point, Virginia. The daughter of a sharecropper, she is mixed race with a lineage that includes black, European, and Native American. As a young girl, she is so skinny, she's given the nickname Stringbean. Eventually, this is shortened to the pet name Richard would call her for the rest of their days, Bean. Mildred, soft-spoken and shy, meets Richard when she is 11 and he is 17 after Richard comes over to listen to her brothers play music. Over the years, they continue to see one another in their extremely tight-knit social circle, but initially, Mildred is far from impressed by Richard. She would later say, When we first met, I didn't like him. I don't know, he was arrogant. But I got to know him, and he was a very nice person. A budding friendship between the two soon leads their relationship on a path to a more romantic one. Mildred then becomes pregnant at 18, and the young couple decides to get married. Richard, who understands Virginia's stance on interracial marriage, knows that he and his bride-to-be would be unable to get a license to marry in Virginia. So he drives them 80 miles north to more liberal Washington, D.C. The happy couple picks a minister from the phone book, and then inside the minister's home on June 2, 1958, exchange their wedding vows. After the ceremony, they head back to Virginia, where they begin married life together by moving in with Mildred's parents. Two weeks later, based on some anonymous tip, the sheriff and his men come knocking. One quick footnote here, the Lovings actually knew other interracial married couples living in Caroline County at the time. So why the sheriff only chose to arrest the Lovings remains a mystery. Richard speculates it may have been one of the white men who was a fellow drag racer in the area, which was a major part of entertainment in the community. Over the years, Richard and his black racing partners had collected 99 trophies and plenty of cash winnings from their weekend races, making them the ones to beat at the track. A quick anonymous call to the sheriff about Richard's illegal nuptials? Well, maybe that gets Richard and his car out of the races. The day following their arrest, Richard's sister posts their $1,000 bail, which results in Richard being released. As for Mildred, well, the authorities had other plans for her. Despite being five months pregnant, she is forced to remain in jail because, as the police told Richard and the Bond Company, if they post her bail, they will throw Richard right back in. Mildred is left inside her small, dilapidated cell with no working plumbing for four more days, until finally being released into her father's custody. The Lovings would remain separated in their respective parents' homes until a few months later in October, five days after the birth of their son, incidentally, when they were officially indicted on charges of violating Virginia's anti-miscegenation law, which deems interracial marriages a felony. When it comes time for their trial, 
their lawyer makes it clear that they have in fact broken Virginia law. So to avoid a possible prison sentence, the two should plead guilty. On January 6, 1959, the Lovings enter a guilty plea before Judge Leon Bazile. They are sentenced to one year in prison, but the sentence is suspended on the condition that the Lovings leave the county and the state and not return together for a period of no less than 25 years. Not wanting to go to prison, the Lovings reluctantly accept the terms of the sentence. Before clearing the courtroom, Judge Bazile explains his ruling in a way that is probably astonishing to anyone who believes that justice is and should be blind, but I also feel that what he says is somewhat indicative of the prevailing way of thinking for many in this particular place and time. He says, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference of his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races showed that he did not intend for the races to mix. After being forced to listen to this racist judge insult the sanctity of their marriage, they are slighted yet again by being forced to pay $36.29 each in court fees. But the biggest indignity of this ordeal is that the Lovings are effectively banished from their home, their community, their friends and family, and the only world they've ever known. With few options of places for them to live, they decide to move to Washington, D.C. to live with one of Mildred's cousins, who has a small place in a predominantly poor black neighborhood. Fortunately, there's one small loophole in the sentence they received from Judge Bazile. He ruled that they can't be together in the county or the state, but if they come back and they're not together, well, that's not breaking the terms of their sentencing. This sets up kind of a cat and mouse game between the Lovings and the authorities in Caroline County. Richard and Mildred know as long as they're not seen together, they can sneak back into Virginia to see family and friends whenever they want. To make sure they don't get caught, they would often arrive at people's homes in different vehicles and at different times. Once safe inside the home, the two rarely leave, instead choosing to remain inside and out of sight from any racist tipsters or patrolling local authorities. But on one occasion, the year following their forced exile, they are caught and arrested for trying to meet with their family on Easter. Fortunately, they're quickly released, but they know now that if they're caught again, next time, they might not be so lucky. The Lovings are so afraid of getting caught again that when Mildred decides to return home to Virginia, so she can give birth to her next two children with family around, Richard can't be there to witness the births. The very real fear of going to jail for a year and being removed completely from his family makes this risk something he just can't take. The years they spend in exile are truly miserable times for the Lovings. The pain of being away from those they love is part of it, but also because they're country folk through and through so life in the big city just kind of wears them down. No more so than one day in 1963, four years after their arrest. They're still living in Washington, D.C., 
when her eldest son rushes into the home to tell Mildred that her youngest, Donald, was hit by a car while playing in the street. She rushes outside, not knowing if he's dead or alive. Luckily, Donald is okay, just a few scrapes and bruises. But for Mildred, her son's near miss while playing in the busy DC streets becomes the straw that finally broke the camel's back. The frustration of their social isolation and financial difficulties in Washington, D.C., combined with a yearning to return to their former life in Caroline County, prompts Mildred to sit down and write a letter to find someone, anyone, who might be able to help her and her family get back home. She chooses to write a letter to then-Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy does respond to her letter, but indicates that he himself won't be able to help her. But she should seek the help of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. So on June 20th, 1963, Mildred sits down and writes another letter, this time to a lawyer at the ACLU. This is what she wrote. Dear Sir, I am writing you concerning a problem I have. Five years ago, my husband and I were married in the district. We then returned to Virginia to live. My husband is white. I am part Negro and part Indian. At the time, we did not know there was a law in Virginia against mixed marriages. Therefore, we were jailed and tried in a little town of Bowling Green. We were to leave the state to make our home. We have three children and cannot afford an attorney. Please help us if you can. Hope to hear from you real soon. Yours truly, Mr. and Mrs. Richard Loving. Mildred's letter hits its intended target and the ACLU decides to take the case. It assigns two of its best young lawyers, Bernard Cohen and Philip Hirschkopf. A meeting is set up and suddenly the Lovings have someone to help them in their quest to get their lives back. About the case Loving versus Virginia, Cohen would later say, it was a terrible time in America. Racism was ripe and this was the last de jour vestige of racism. There was a lot of de facto racism, but this law was the last on the books manifestation of slavery in America. On November 6, 1963, the ACLU files a motion asking Judge Bazile himself to vacate the Loving's convictions, thus setting aside their sentences. When they get the answer they expect, the judge refusing their request, they immediately go and file an appeal with the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. Eventually, the local and national media get wind of this landmark case that's making its way through the court system. This prompts the otherwise shy and unassuming couple to take part in many print and television interviews, all part of their frontal assault on Virginia and its archaic marital and segregation laws. In 1965, Mildred, who tends to do most of the talking for the couple, explains to a reporter why she is suing the state of Virginia. She points out, We loved each other and got married. We are not marrying the state. The law should allow a person to marry anyone he wants. When the ruling from the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals finally comes down, it's not entirely a loss, but it's not the victory they hope for either. The court upholds Judge Bazile's ruling, 
but does void their sentence, citing that, in part, the 25-year sentence was, well, unreasonable. You think? Despite this moral victory, the Lovings are still not legally allowed to live together in the state of Virginia. This is why Cohen and Hirschkopf take the final appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. If they can win, not only will their case be overturned in Virginia, but it will also pave the way for countless other interracial couples in America to get married for generations to come. On April 10, 1967, the big day comes and Cohen and Hirschkopf will make their case to the nine justices. For their part, the Lovings decide to stay out of the limelight and not attend the historic proceedings. Instead, Richard tells his lawyers to simply pass along a message to the justices for him. He says, Tell the court I love my wife, and it is unfair that I can't live with her in Virginia. A few months later, on June 12th, almost nine years after their initial arrest, the High Court comes back with their decision. In a unanimous ruling of 9-0, to zero, the court completely dismisses Virginia's argument that the law is not discriminatory because it applies identical penalties for both white and black persons. The court concludes that Virginia's laws are aimed at white supremacy, therefore unconstitutional and violate the 14th Amendment. Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote in his opinion the following, The freedom to marry has long been recognized as one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. To deny this fundamental freedom on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications is surely to deprive all the state citizens of liberty without due process of law. And just like that, the Loving's conviction is overturned and they are now legally husband and wife in Virginia and in every other state in the land. This case also invalidates the law in 15 other states, which at the time failed to allow for interracial marriages. Richard, Mildred, and their three children move back to Central Point, where Richard builds them a small but cozy cinder block house. When asked in an interview if she thought the legal case had brought her and Richard closer together, Mildred responds simply, Yes, I think it has. For the next few years, the couple shuns the spotlight as they now have achieved their goal of wanting to live together in the quiet town where they were raised. And I wish I could say that Mildred and Richard lived happily ever after, but unfortunately, that's just not the case. That's because on June 29, 1975, eight years after they earned the right to be legally husband and wife in the state of Virginia, tragedy strikes the Lovings in the worst way. While the couple is coming home from meeting some friends, a drunk driver runs a stop sign and broadsides the Lovings' car. Richard dies in the crash at the age of just 41. Mildred survives, but loses sight in her right eye. After the accident, she would say of losing her husband, He used to take care of me. He was my support. He was my rock. Mildred, who says she thinks about Richard every day, never remarries and remains living in the home Richard builds for her the remainder of her life. 
And although the accident brings an end to their historic marriage, it doesn't end their legacy and the good they did in the world. Not by a long shot. Beginning in 2013, their case is cited as precedent in U.S. federal court decisions holding restrictions on same-sex marriage in the United States. It's also important to note that in 1967, when interracial marriage laws were overturned in the United States, just 3% of all newlyweds were married to someone of a different race or ethnicity. Today, the total number of interracial marriages is near 20% and growing every year. And in honor of their marriage and their decision to fight for what was right, June 12th is now known as National Loving Day. Never one for the spotlight, Mildred rarely does interviews or appears in the media. But before her death from pneumonia in 2008, she did write something that I think speaks directly to the reason she and Richard sacrificed so much to be with each other and for the lives of millions of people they never met. She writes, I am proud that Richard's and my name is on a court case that can help reinforce the love, the commitment, the fairness, and the family that so many people, black or white, young or old, gay or straight, seek in life. I support the freedom to marry for all. That's what loving and loving are all about. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.